Let me introduce myself first. I'm Rob. For those of you that I don't know, I would love to meet you, love to say hi. If we get a chance, come down and say hi sometime, and I'd like to get to know you and your names and family as much as I'm able to. I've been out for a little while, and it's great to be back with you all. Had some time off with my family, which I'm very grateful for. Just as excited that I'd be back and be here this morning as a part of this wonderful series, Psalms for the Whole Heart. And we've chosen these psalms selectively um, based on ones that we just felt compelled to teach. Um, This one in particular is close to my heart because it's something that I think we in our culture and, and individuals, we need the message of Psalm 8. So I'm excited to teach it. Let me tell you where we're going to go next in our series. And we have one more week left after today of Psalms. And then we're going to launch into a four-week study where we're going to look at the big picture of the Bible. Now, we do this every now and then because what we find is when you're only looking at the, the uh, what I call the, the minutia, the verse-by-verse teaching, which is how we teach here primarily, uh, sometimes it's helpful to step back and say, let's look at the big pictures. We're going to study the trees and we're going to study the forest. So we're going to do one of these big picture series just for four weeks, we're going to call it a generous table. And we're going to trace the idea of a table or the idea of food, hospitality throughout the Bible and describe how the whole story of the Bible can be summarized by God inviting human beings to sit at a table and feast. And what does that mean for us with our dining room tables and our interaction with our neighbors and families around tables? After we're finished with this series, I think you'll not only understand the Bible better, but you will never sit at another dining table the same way again, because a meal is always more than a meal. That'll be for four weeks. After that, we're going to dive into Colossians. We're going to go back to the minutia. We're going to look at it verse by verse, the whole letter of Colossians, one of my favorite books of the New Testament. Very excited about that. That'll be the second week of September. We'll take us probably through the fall, for sure through the fall. We'll pause for Advent, probably come back and finish Colossians in early 2020. So that's an overview about the next six months. I'm excited about all of it. Glad you're here with us. Now let's dive into Psalm 8. You know, there's an old story that I heard about a rabbi that was once wandering through the wilderness, kind of lost a little bit. And it didn't bother him at first because he was lost in thought as well, contemplating God's word, contemplating the things of life. And, but after a little while, he came upon this wall that he never knew was there before. He kind of wandered into some woods and unmarked was a military installation. I say unmarked. It wasn't on any map. It was a secretive place. And he'd never been there before and quickly realized he was in a place he shouldn't be. And he heard a guard shout down from the tower of this wall, who are you? And what are you doing here? Well, the rabbi didn't really have a good answer for those questions. So he kind of feebly just sort of said, what? The guard repeated his questions even with more intensity. Who are you? What are you doing here? The rabbi thought for a minute. A smile came to his face, and he called back with a question of his own. How much do they pay you to ask these questions? The guard shouted back, none of your business. The rabbi said, whatever it is, I'll pay you double if you'll come to my house and ask me those same questions every day. Who are you? What are you doing here? Two of the most important questions you might ever be asked. It's a privilege and honor for me to ask you them this morning. And we've come to a passage of scripture, a little portion of scripture that's gonna help us answer them. Aren't these two of the most fundamental questions about our identity? You think about whatever you answer these questions is gonna determine 
oftentimes a career field that you'll choose, um, who you will marry, uh, your relationships, how you think about where you live. Some of you have come here to Franklin because you believe God has something for you here. You, you need an answer to these questions, do you not? It's not something, by the way, that you think about only one time in your life. We need to always be thinking about these questions. Who am I? What am I doing here? Why has God put me on this earth? Why has God put me in this family, in this neighborhood, in this city? Who am I? What do I mean to God? Do I mean anything? How do I relate to other people? What am I doing on this planet? Who are you and what are you doing here? Psalm 8 will help us. We're gonna walk through it verse by verse, explain the whole context and everything about this uh, wonderful, incredible psalm. And then we will uh, discuss three principles from Psalm 8 to help us answer these questions. And I know you won't want to miss those because they are rich and full and have been so helpful to me in the last two weeks as I've dug into this passage. Let's start at the very top. Even before verse one, you're going to see a little inscription in your scripture and your copy of God's word that says, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. You might have a little margin note next to Gittith. It'll take you down to a note at the bottom of your Bible saying something like this, probably a musical or liturgical term. The truth is we have no idea what that means. It's been lost in time. It probably was something related to music. Maybe it was the melody that this psalm was meant to be uh, sung to. We're not sure. But what we do know is we do know the author of the psalm, and that's pretty significant because we know an awful lot about David. We know about his childhood as a shepherd. We know about his confrontation with the giant Goliath. We know that he later became the king, Israel's best king, and that God would describe David as a man after his, God's own heart. The only man in scripture to kind of be referred to that way in, uh, by God. So it's very significant that David wrote this psalm. You'll see how all that comes into play as we walk through it. Let's look at verse one now, and this will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, um, we didn't get this captured exactly right on the screen, but in your copy of God's word, you'll notice that the first Lord should have all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The second Lord, it will not. That signifies that in the original language, in this case the Hebrew, that that word that's translated into Lord is actually the proper name of God. It was the divine name. We might pronounce it Yahweh. It means I am. It's the name that God gave to the Hebrew people himself. It's not just another way of saying God generically. It's the God. It's like, you know, I'm called Rob. God is saying, ah, you call me Yahweh. I am. Now, the Hebrew people would not pronounce the divine name, so they would replace it with other words. So when someone would read this text, even though it said Yahweh, David wrote it Yahweh, they would read it Adonai, which is Lord. So over time, it got translated to us, Lord, our Lord. Oh, Lord, our Lord. Now, the second Lord means exactly what you think it is. It's a master. It's a sovereign. It's someone that you follow or someone that you serve. So, he's, so David is saying, oh, Lord, our Lord. So the God, the one true Yahweh God, is the one that we serve, is the one that we follow. He's the one that's our Lord, and he's addressing this psalm to him. How majestic is your name. Name means your reputation, your renown, your sense of weight. It's everything that people think of when they hear your name. That's the Hebrew context of name. It's much more significant than just the pleasant-sounding syllables. And we don't usually ask, what does your name mean? It meant a great deal in that Hebrew culture. And so David is saying, all over the earth, not just us Hebrews, Yahweh's name, your name, Yahweh, is the one that's majestic. 
And then he goes on to talk about from the earth up to the heavens. You've set your glory above the heavens. Now, when you see this word heavens, this plural sense of heavens, it's not talking about heaven, like we think of heaven. The heavens are the skies. It's the stars, the moon. He's gonna talk about that in a couple of verses. It's everything that we look up and see. Now, in the ancient culture, the heavens in their minds overlapped with the dwelling place of God. In the pagan culture, the dwelling place of the gods, plural, was in the heavens. So what David is saying here is not only is the Lord's name majestic all over the earth, his glory is above all of the so-called dwelling places of the gods. Ancient people would look up at the stars and they think, no, those are gods up there, or at least they represent or point to the gods. This is why a lot of the constellations and other things are all, you know, in Greek mythology and all these kinds of things related to, to gods. What David is saying is there is only one true God. His name is majestic on all the earth and his glory is high above the dwelling place of any other so-called gods. So from the lowest point on the earth to the highest point, even above the highest point of the heavens, Yahweh is the one who's in charge. He's the one true God. And I think it'd be appropriate for us 3,500 years after David wrote these words to say together what is true. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you believe that and you can confess that and say that with integrity, let's just say this together as a congregation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, in all the earth. Now he's gonna move on in verse two, a little bit of a confusing verse, but we'll, we'll unpack it together. Verse two, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. You may have heard the expression from the mouth of babes. That's where this comes from, or this is where that comes from. And usually that signifies wisdom that comes from a little child. What David is saying here is something even, even deeper, even something more profound. And David is saying that God is so mighty and powerful that he can defeat his enemies with the gurgling cries of the smallest of humans, a baby, an infant. The theme that David is tapping in here is all over the scripture, and it's the idea that God delights to use the weak to overcome the strong. That, that theme plays all throughout the scripture, right up into the life of Christ, you know, born as a baby. Uh, David knew a little something about children bringing down powerful giants, did he not? So he very well may have been reflecting on this as he wrote this. The enemy, the avenger, is going to be stilled or is going to be silenced by the smallest cry from a child or a baby. I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. He says, nursing infants gurgle choruses about you. Toddlers shout the songs that drown out enemy talk and silence atheist babble. That's a good paraphrase of verse 2. So David has already gone from the heavens down to the, the, the smallest human beings, babies, and now he's gonna jump back up to the heavens. Let's take a look at verse three. I'll read three and four together. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Uh, let's start back at verse three. You have to imagine David the shepherd now lying out under the stars. Uh, I, he either wrote the, these words in, in that 
state or he was reflecting back on this. I'm, I'm convinced of it. He, he's laying out, looking at the heavens, the stars, the moon, and he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed. I love the fact in verse three that he calls the heavens the work of your fingers. Do you realize what he's talking about? The mighty, majestic, immense universe is just like finger painting to God. He's like, you don't even have to use your whole arm to make all that. It's just like little dots with your fingers. That's very good writing. And then, and then verse four, in light of the majesty of the universe, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, there's nothing that will make you feel so small than to truly see the night sky. Think about a time in your life when you truly saw the sky. It's kind of sad that I have to say think about a time because it, it wasn't last night if you were in Franklin, Tennessee. You know, <laughs> I have to go back and think, well, when was the last time I was camping? Or when was the last time I was in a developing nation? You know, when was the last time I was out in the countryside? And you know, there's times in life I remember maybe the first time that I ever remember really seeing the night sky. And every time I do, I think about this. It's, it's not so much something you see as much as it is something you feel. And I don't, I'm not trying to be mystic. I just mean there's a sense that almost you're kind of lifted up from, from the little tiny little earth and it's just so enveloping. You lose yourself a little bit if you really look at it. That's the sense that I think David wrote these words. Well, what is man that you're mindful of us in light of everything that's above? Now we know even more than David did the vastness, the majesty of God's creation in the stars in the heavens, do we not? David could not have known how many stars there actually were out there. You know, as vast as it would have seemed to him with no light pollution around him, he would have had an incredible view. And yet what we know now is our galaxy alone has approximately 100 billion stars as best as we can estimate. What we also know is there may be as many as 100 billion galaxies. And if each galaxy has Maybe an average of 100 billion stars we're talking about, I can't even wrap my mind around this number, but 10 billion trillion. 10 billion trillion. I, I did some Googling because I've always wondered, are there more grains of sand on the, all the beaches of the earth or stars in all the universe? Stars. As best as we can estimate, there are more stars. Just imagine that. And now we know what a star is, how massive it is, how incredible, how immense. Last month, astronomers discovered two new planets that are relatively close to us. They're in our own um, uh, Milky Way galaxy. And these two new planets caught their eyes because they are two of the most Earth-like planets that have yet been discovered in the universe. And that's obviously very interesting because if they're a certain distance from their sun and they're a certain size, they possibly could have life on them. So they've been looking at these two planets and, and they've said, they're so close, they're only 12.5 light years away. <laughs> now think about that. That's if you were able to go the speed of light, which of course we can't, if we were able to go the speed of light, it would take you 12 and a half years. Now they actually say, comparatively speaking, that's not just in our neighborhood, that's in our backyard. 
Did some research on this. We obviously can't travel the speed of light, but what if we could go in our fastest manned spacecraft? So you know, the fastest a manned spacecraft has ever gone was, I think it, was, it wasn't Apollo 11, which has gotten all the attention. I think it was Apollo 10. When it was, it was slinging around in their gravitational system, it traveled the fastest speed any human being has ever gone. And I did some calculations. If we could get in a spacecraft going that speed constantly, and we were to leave today, how long would it take us to get to these two new planets? 335,000 years. <laughs> That's a really big backyard. This is the scope of the universe. Um, one more thing to really let, let this sit in with you. We got a little video I want to show you, just a short little uh, reminder of how small we are. I'll narrate this. Of course, we know where that is. That's home. There's our moon. We're going to back out a little bit more. Here's our wonderful. Uh, galaxy or our uh, uh, solar system, thank you, and all that that entails and it's disappearing. Our sun is still bright, but it's going to get dimmer and dimmer as we zoom out. Now we see all kinds of other stars. This is still in our own galaxy. There's the Milky Way galaxy with its 100 billion stars, and now that's disappearing as well, and all these other galaxies, and I don't even know what that is. And we keep zooming out and out and out and on and on and on it goes. We are truly a speck of dust. David is caught up in this idea that we are so small, but we are so important. I don't know if you're catching this in David's question, but this, this is the, the amazement to him. Let's look again at verse 4. It's not just a question, it's an expression of wonder. And I want you to see how, how we know this. You can line up the, the phrases in parallel form. Remember, we talked about parallelism in the psalm. What is man? Now skip down the son of man. Those are in parallel. Two ways of talking about the human race. Women, you're not being left out of this. This is mankind. This is humankind. What is Humankind, that you're mindful of him, the son of man, or what is humankind, that you care for him? Well, that means that also in parallel, you are mindful of humans and you care for humans. We may be small, but we fill the mind of God. That is what is taking David's breath away. David was way ahead of his time. He knew how remarkable it was that, that we little of dust would fill the thoughts of God and he was in awe of it. He's going to keep you know, espousing this theme in the verses to come. Let's look at verse 5. So in light of how small we are, yet you've made him, still talking about human beings, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. I wish I had more time to unpack this uh, noun, uh, human beings. Um, I'll spend just a bit of time on it. Can't go there long. If you're reading NIV, you'll see angels. You made him a little lower than the angels. If you're reading New American Standard, it'll say God, capital G, God. Well, which is it? Is it angels? Is it God? Is it heavenly beings? I like heavenly beings, and I'll tell you why. It's translating the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is a plural noun that means the beings that inhabit the spirit realm or the spiritual realm. That sounds strange to our ears. But keep in mind, when God made all things, he did not just make humans and animals and all the things on our earth. He also created other spiritual beings. We usually refer to them as angels. 
These are spiritual beings. Again, heavenly beings would be a reference to those, you know, beings that live in the heavens with God, so to speak. So God created angels, which is a, a, a Greek word that means messengers. He created angels, spirit beings to serve him. He also created human beings. Now, interestingly, we know there are demons as well. Those are essentially angels that are in rebellion against God. Those are the demons. We also know from scripture, and we don't have time to unpack this, there appears to be different levels of spiritual beings, different ranks and different kinds, different types. A lot of this is mystery. We only know little bits and pieces throughout scripture. It'd be an interesting study someday. But what I believe David is saying here is there's God whose glory is above the heavens. Then there are the spirit beings that sort of fill the heavens, so to speak, the Elohim. And then right underneath in God's taxonomy, humans. You've made him just a little lower. Now, what does it mean to be a little lower? I think it's this uh, idea that our capacity and our ability and our power is just a little bit underneath the Elohim, the angels, the messengers of God, the heavenly beings. But the next line is even more remarkable. So we may be just a hair lower than the heavenly beings, but you've crowned him, meaning us, humans, with glory and honor. This is really remarkable in light of verse one, whose glory is above the heavens? Yahweh. Yahweh is the only one who's worthy of glory. So Yahweh has taken part of his glory or a sense that he has crowned us with glory. That's unique, something that even the Elohim, the, the angels don't have. They weren't crowned with God's glory. They're never described quite this way, glory and honor. Uh, I think it's pretty clear, and, and even more from the verses that follow, it's clear. David has Genesis 1 in mind. Remember when Genesis 1 says that God made human beings in his own image? The image of God, he created them. This is the same idea, he crowned humans with glory and honor. Now, look at the next three verses, and this is going to reinforce why I think David has Genesis 1 on his mind as he writes this. Take a look, verses 6 to 8. You've given him, still talking about the human race, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Verse 7, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field. Verse 8, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. This is exactly the, uh, describing how God made, made the earth. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Okay, now the key phrase in these verses, we're gonna go back up to verse six, is this phrase, you have given him, humankind, dominion. It's actually one Hebrew word that you can't translate with one English word. The whole phrase, you've given him dominion, is all one Hebrew word. Actually, technically, you've given him dominion over. All that's one word. It's a verb that means to rule or govern. He, he entrusted governance to us. David the king knew a little something about governing. He knew what that was all about. This is not the idea that God gave us the animals to possess or the earth itself to possess, but rather he made us to govern as his delegates. This matches Genesis 1 perfectly. 
Sometimes we misinterpret this whole idea. It's like, well, God put us at the top of the food chain. And so we can do whatever we want to with whatever's below us in the food chain. That's not David's point. He's saying God commissioned us to govern the earth. As low as we are and as small as we are in comparison to God, we had this important job given to us. That's exactly what David is getting after. Now, this is an astonishing purpose if you think about it. We are created in the image of God and placed on the earth for the purpose of exercising God's authority, his just rulership over the rest of creation. That was taking David's breath away. David knew what it meant to govern a small little thing. Now he's realizing, oh, human beings are meant to govern the whole earth, but not for our own glory, for the glory that was placed on us, the glory that belongs only to Yahweh. You see how all this psalm is coming together. Now, contemplating all of this leads David back to the only place that it can, and that's worship. So verse nine goes back to the, the, the refrain from verse one. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Worship is the ultimate purpose for every created thing. But what I want you to know is worship is not just singing songs in awe of God. It is that. That's exactly what David was doing when he wrote this. But David is saying worship is how we exist in relationship to God. Worship is how we govern over the creation. Worship is how we relate to God and worship is how even we relate to other human beings. So now let's apply this psalm. Now that we've walked through it verse by verse, I want to come back to this question. Who are you and what are you doing here? Psalm 8 gives us three principles that I think... um, can help us triangulate our identity and purpose. Let me explain what I mean. There's a principle that relates to our relationship with God, one that relates to our relationship with other humans, and one that relates to our relationship with the creation around us. And if you grab onto those three things, who am I in relation to God? Who am I in relation to other humans? Who am I in relation to the creation around me? You can triangulate your own purpose, and you can apply this to your own context. That's where we're going to go. Let me give you these three principles. Um, You you can write them down if you want as I go. I'm also going to put them all three on the screen at the end. Number one, we are under God, yet deeply loved by him. We are under God, yet deeply loved by him. This is what David could not get over. You see, there's two parts to this. Are we small in relationship to God? Yes. Are we subservient to him? Yes. Are we a created being who designed to serve a creator? Yes, 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 absolutely. And yet, do we matter? Yes. Does he think of us? Yes. Does he care for us? Yes. Do you see how you have to hold these two things in tension? You can't start to imagine that you're above God and you get to create him in your own image. You have to know that you are below him and what he says goes. That is a fundamental principle of living as a created being. And yet, David says, you care, we matter. You see... Our society has completely rejected this idea on both ends. It has dismissed God by elevating human beings 
to the top of the created universe, essentially. And even those that believe in God often dismiss him by saying, well, but I don't necessarily have to do everything he says because I don't think it makes sense. What a disaster this has created. And on the other hand, many Christians who, who live in, in, in even righteous fear of God don't really believe that they are loved by him, that they matter to him. Do you see? Your identity is rooted in both. You are under God, yet deeply loved by him. That's principle number one. If you want to know your identity and purpose, you have to start there. By the way, that's the essence of true humility. Humility is not thinking of yourself less than you are. It's seeing yourself as you are. Measuring yourself to God and finding yourself awfully small yet awfully important. Isn't that an amazing tension to hold? You are under God yet deeply loved by him. Let's go to the second principle which relates to our relationship with other people. We are equal to all other humans. That's the starting place. There'll be a back half to that phrase in a minute. We are equal to all other humans. We see this in verse five. Mankind crowned with glory and honor. Not the Hebrew people or not the followers of Jesus or you know, not the, the, anyone who believes in God and those that don't believe in God are not crowned with glory and honor. No, 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 no. God made us in his image. Male and female, he created us. Boom, the whole set of us, you see. Think about how our society has damaged and twisted and interacts so wrongly around this concept. What would it look like for us as Christians to say, you know what, even when I disagree with someone or see the world differently than someone, I'm gonna interact with them and, and, and if needed, disagree with them in a way that is mindful that they are made in the image of God crowned with glory and honor. I think that would have profound implications for our marriages, for our neighboring, for our parenting, the way we interact with our coworkers, the way we think about politics, the way we interact with social media. Think about the profound implications of that. Christians of all people should model that. Now, who modeled this for us? Well, of course, Jesus did. So Jesus, in his life, we're gonna add a second phrase to this. We are equal to all other humans, yet we choose to serve. Because that's what Jesus did. So Jesus came and he says, I've not come to be served, but to serve. And then to his followers, he says, follow me in that. If you wanna glorify the Father, wash feet. Wow. You are an image bearer of a God whose nature is self-giving. So you reflect his image by giving of yourself in service to others. If that's not a core part of your identity and purpose, you're not anchored in a biblical worldview of humanity. So we are under God, yet deeply loved by him, and we are equal to all other humans. That should make a difference in how we interact, yet we choose to serve them by following Jesus. Do you start to see how these are layering on each other? Running out of time, I'm gonna go to my third one here. We are over the rest of creation, yet as caretakers, not consumers. A lot I could say about that, but, but I do think when you look at humanity as a whole, we have stepped out of our created purpose as cultivators and established instead an identity as consumers. This is particularly true in our cultural context, I believe, and I am guilty. 
Does this mean we shouldn't ever consume things, Rob? We shouldn't buy stuff? No, of course not. God gives us things to consume, but why would he give us things to consume? So we can have strength and energy to be about the work of cultivating, which is the work that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, gardening wasn't just some random vocation he doled out. It was sort of the prime vocation of human beings to cultivate the earth to the glory of God, to create things, to govern things, to organize things, to bring out the potential that's in the raw material of creation. Think about the way Jesus modeled this. He exercised authority over the natural world through his miracles, but he never did it as a consumer, only as a cultivator. He multiplied bread and gave it to hungry people. He calmed a storm and put it in its place. He healed diseases that are not intended to be infecting people and wrecking the creation. You see, Jesus' miracles give a preview of the whole world rightly related to God. Let this next sentence blow your mind a little bit as it has for me this week. Jesus' miracles were a taste of God's rule mediated through human agency. Jesus came to do what we failed to do. In his first coming, we see this in just a little snapshot. Like, this is the rule of God breaking through on earth. Why do you think Jesus came as a man? Well, lots of reasons. To identify with us, you know, to struggle in ways that we'd be tempted by all of that, but also to do the prime job of human beings that we had failed to do and then invite us into him. And we will one day, I believe on the new earth, do things much like Jesus did in authority and rulership over the new earth that will be recreated. That gets us in a fascinating place. I've got to wrap up. Let me put these three principles on the screen and let's triangulate a little bit. Number one, we are under God yet deeply loved by him. If you are off on that fundamental prime relationship either way, you're gonna struggle with your identity and purpose. Number two, we are equal to all other humans, yet we choose to serve. If you even subtly, because no one would do this consciously, I hope, believe you are superior or you're better or you're smarter and that makes you more valuable or you've got the right position and so therefore you must have all that kind of stuff, you will not treat people the way Jesus did. Now, did Jesus disagree with people? Vehemently so. Yet did he treat them as human beings created in the image of God always and he modeled service for us. And then finally, we are to be over creation, but not primarily as consumers, primarily as gardeners, as cultivators. What does that mean for your vocation? What does that mean for you? Whether you're, you're home with a family or taking care of a house or you're an entrepreneur or you're in education or you're in the medical field, have you ever connected the dots of cultivating the earth, the raw potential that's around you and, and you are stewarding over this one little part where you have a sphere of influence to bring glory to God and flourishing to other human beings in service to them. Have you ever thought about that? That's worth thinking about this week. One last thing. If you have not yet put your trust in Jesus, none of this matters in a sense you've not yet put your trust in Jesus, you'll try to go home and do all this apart from the spirit of Christ that could indwell you and you will not be able to. You see, Jesus did all these three things so that we can live in him and through him. And so if you have this Holy Spirit in you by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, then you can go home and you can say, Spirit, would you help me as I navigate these three things and find my identity and purpose on this planet? 
And that's what God has called us to. Let me pray for us. And as I do, I'm gonna invite us to worship. So go ahead and bow your heads. Close your eyes. I I want us to to close our service in worship because this is how David closed his psalm. It was good and right for him and good and right for us to be led by the Spirit to this place. I would like you to imagine with your eyes closed here that that you're, you're in a similar place to what David likely was when he wrote this psalm, which is out under the heavens, the stars, the sky, the night, the moon. Imagine yourself taking all of that in, staring up into the heavens, the vastness and complexity of stars, galaxies, planets, contemplating just how small you are in the immensity of the universe. Now think about the God who created it all. Think about how everything in creation was made to glorify him. Those galaxies that you can only imagine above you, the stars that you can see, tiny bits of their light, the planets, the, even the mountains on our earth, the oceans, the vastness of those, the, the animals that run around this planet that God made, even the rocks, the wind, and every person, including you, made to glorify God. I want to take you to one more place mentally. Although you are such a tiny part of God's creation, his word says that he is mindful of you, that you matter to him, that you fill his thoughts. Can you believe that this morning? Would you dare to believe that this morning? Through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, for all of you who have put your trust in Christ, you've been made right with God. That means the thoughts that come to his mind when he thinks of you are good thoughts. You are clean in the sight of God. And all of this, from the stars above to the wonder of your own salvation, is God's work, not yours. And so, like David, allow the Holy Spirit that is inside of you to stir you up to worship, to worship the one true God.